Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really the project is aimed at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet read the Bible with much or any success. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Genesis, a great book, and my goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we uh, got into Noah, the Ark, and the Flood, and that week's show, as well as all the other ones, are available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, etc. Today's show, we continue with Noah and the Ark and the Flood. We've got a lot more work to do there, and so I look forward to doing that with you. Lord, be with us today. Help us understand this story and apply it to our lives. Help us understand you better what you want from us and for us in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. And last week we covered chapter 6, verse 13, through chapter 8, verse 12. And we wrapped up last week's show with the earth starting to dry out slowly And Noah had sent out the raven unsuccessfully, and then the dove had three flights, which were tremendously successful. So we pick it up today in verses 13 through 19, and I'm just going to read 13 through 17 and avoid some overlap at the end of the passage. Verse 13, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. The calendar reference in verse 13 is sort of interesting. The first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, so it's his birthday, so that's pretty fun. And it's a type of New Year's Day in a way, right? The first day of the first month. Verse 14 specifies that it was completely dry. Even though it probably seemed or looked okay before, God had Noah wait. There's probably some practical reasons for this, including some health concerns. From a spiritual perspective, it points to faith, patience, and waiting for God's timing. In total, it's 390 days for all of this. And so it took about nine times as long to dry as to flood the earth, those 40 days. As Cass notes, to restore order is much harder than to destroy it. Verse 15, God reappears and speaks here, the first recorded since he told Noah to get on the ark. One wonders if Noah ever thought that God had forgotten him. Verses 16 and 17, man and animals come out of the ark, just like day six of creation. We talked about the parallels with the recreation here and the initial creation back in Genesis 1. Day 6 of Genesis 1 had the animals and man come out or be created, and here they come out of the ark. And they are exhorted to exercise dominion and multiply. And uh, that's the same thing we saw in Genesis 1. 
Verse 16 gives an order to come out of the ark, and it turns out, verse 18, which I did not read, but we'll talk about this later, they don't come out of the ark in the proper order, which is actually a really big overlooked thing, but I'll talk about that later. A couple of interesting questions here. How did the animals eat after the flood? Was it from the ark's continuing provisions? Are the plants alive? Again, you can't have animals killing each other when there are so few of them, so that's not an option. So a curiosity, but kind of interesting to think about. Okay, so we're going to move on in the passage. There's three things left in Noah's story uh, to talk about in his interactions with God. The first is a sacrifice at the end of chapter 8, and then in chapter 9 we have an introduction to formal law and covenant. So we'll start by reading verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Verse 20 starts with a reference to an altar. So this formalizes worship. Perhaps it was a tradition at this point that's not described by the text uh, and a little different from what Cain and Abel had done in chapter 4. Here we have clean animals and a burnt offering. This would later be uh, codified in Leviticus chapter 1, and it's offered to the Lord, again using the name of Yahweh, the personal and covenant name of God that we saw back in Genesis 2. Now, Jewish commentators are rougher on Noah than Christians are probably used to. For example, Leon Cass has questions about the sacrifice and is even critical of it. He describes it as a strange and unforeseen event, apparently without any divine instruction. And that's certainly the case, right? Noah, from the text perspective, just seems to come out and do this, and we're not sure why he's doing it. Uh, we can read future parts of the Bible back into this, but if you read the text straight up, it's not clear why he's doing this. It's also strange because Noah has been relatively silent and passive uh, with respect to a lot of things here. Uh, I mean, he builds the boat, but he doesn't ask questions of God. He just seems to go along and get along. So it's interesting or odd, depending on your perspective, to see him with what the text seems to describe as an, as initiative. So again, to be clear, it's reasonable to say that there's other things not in the text here. Maybe the law has been given to him before. Maybe that's why there's a, a distinction between clean and unclean, but he seems to know what he's doing. It seems to be some sort of custom, maybe after Cain and Abel, or maybe he's just guessing as Cain seemed to do. After all, we also know that Noah walked with God. He experienced God's direction in building the ark, his awesome power, his gracious care and provision, and so maybe it's just understood that sacrifice is the right thing to do. Even so, there's still some odd things here. Sacrifice is, in a way, the opposite of creation and recreation, right? It's a destruction of a sword just after this act of recreation by God. And it also runs counter, at least short-term, to God's command that the animals be fruitful and multiply that we saw back in verse 17. 
It's also difficult or strange, probably for Noah, that these animals had just been his companions. Leon Cass says Noah's self-defining first act in the new world is an act of violence against the living world. A simple, harmonious world order led by a human being seems to be impossible. And I think this is right, that at the least, this is a strange-looking action, given the recent commands, given what's just taken place uh, on the ark. Now, what's his motive here? I think we can imagine a glorious motive, that he's just simply expressing tremendous thanksgiving. Uh, If we go a little more cynically, we could imagine that he's hoping to stave off more rain. And I think we do the same thing with God, right? Sometimes our prayers and praises, and our prayers in particular, are of thanksgiving, but sometimes we're treating God like a, a vending machine, right? And we're trying to placate God at times with prayers. And so part of maturity is moving from the hoping our prayers hold off the rain kind of thing to thanksgiving and focusing on the things that matter most. Leon Cass says, overwhelmed by the destructive power of nature, but perhaps even more impressed by his own salvation, Noah is moved by strong feelings of dread, awe, and gratitude to acknowledge the superiority and the importance of the divine. And that sounds right to me. I mean, Noah's just been through this incredible experience, uh, in some ways lasting for decades, but then culminating in this climactic moment. And he must be feeling, uh, you know, a wide range of emotions here from gratitude to fear and awe. In any case, his voluntary response here is worship and sacrifice. And it is spontaneous after God's salvation and deliverance. And I think we can learn from this at least that we should have gratitude for any grace that we receive, whether it's large, as in this case, or anything that's small as well. I think Noah also gets credit for not rationalizing away his impulse here, right? That he might have thought, well, my stock of animals is kind of small. Um, Maybe I should wait until I have more. So he's got trust and faith here as well. And I think that's impressive. Reminds me of Proverbs 3, 9 for us. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, right? For us to give the first, the best to God is an indication of faith and trust. Romans 12, 1, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so it's the same for us, right? We give our best, we give our lives to God who has been so gracious for us. That is the heart of worship. Now, what's God's response in this? Verse 21, he's pleased by the aroma. So that's a very good sign. Uh, Reminds me of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? Certainly Christ's sacrifice and our living sacrifices, back to Romans 12, 1, uh, walking in the way of love uh, are going to be pleasing to God. In Revelation, we read about our prayers being incense, and those are pleasing to God as well. Now, sometimes the commentators have some fun with this. You know, they wonder whether God is pleased completely or pleased as when a kid picks a flower from your flower garden to present it to you. And I think that's a, a funny picture, right? That you could be pleased, but it's a different sort of pleased that could take place here, right? God is generally happy. Maybe he's completely happy, right, with Noah's response, but we're not told that by the text. And it's not the sacrifice per se. Never is, right? It's what it represents and how it's given. We saw this back with Cain and Abel. There's a classic passage on this in 1 Samuel 15. The sacrifice is only a type. It's only a representation of the heart 
that the action points to greater things, uh, the heart, the mind, the soul in its relationship to God. Verse 21 continues with God said in his heart, and he's going to tell Noah shortly, but for now it's in his heart. And then 21 is never again, which is then expressed poetically, beautifully, as forever in verse 22. He's not going to curse the ground. So it's a different Hebrew word that's used here, but it does seem to refer to the reference in chapter 3, verse 17, or maybe it means there'll be no more add-on curses, as he had done with Cain in chapter 4, verse 12, and never again would he destroy all living creatures. So there will still be judgment and occasional destruction, but just not to this level. The end of verse 21 is pretty ominous, that all of this is despite continuing sin nature. Not a way it's not so ominous, right, that we still see God's mercy and grace revisited, that that will continue despite trouble along these lines. The wording is very similar to chapter 6, verse 5. It does work in the word childhood, so that's interesting, and it's probably our initial introduction to the idea of an age of accountability. The phrase also, I think, provides context for us understanding if God is totally pleased with Noah's effort. This would be a weird time to say something like this, in the text, if, if God is totally pleased, if recreation with a righteous family and its righteous leaders are giving an excellent sacrifice, this is not the kind of phrasing you would expect to see here. In any case, it's a useful reminder to Noah, and it makes clear to the reader that starting over with Noah or anyone else is not going to work, right? It's not going to be the final solution. We're already pointing forward in the text to what's going to become Abraham and the people of Israel. And ultimately, that's not going to work either. That law and covenant, God working with a special people, is not going to be sufficient. That takes us to the new covenant and Jesus. As Soloveitchik says, no leaps in human nature are expressed here. A catastrophe, even of such enormous proportions as the flood, cannot have a redeeming effect upon man. So we'll get to Abraham soon enough in Genesis 12, but before that we have Genesis 9 with the formalization of law and covenant, but we'll take care of that after the break. Listeners, if you're willing, please go to christmasgiftoflife.com to support the Christianville Foundation. Uh, it's an organization in Haiti, founded in 1978, that provides food, education, and health care to over 1,600 children daily, and they would greatly appreciate your support. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome to the Word Diet. We're in Noah and the Flood and the Ark today, Genesis 8 and 9, and we did the wrap-up on the Flood, the aftermath, and Noah's sacrifice at the end of chapter 8 in the last segment. This segment, we're going to do chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is God's covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal." And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. 
The first thing is to note the structure of the passage. The, it bookends opening and closing with the blessing and the commission to multiply and have dominion as in verses 1 and 7. This is repeating what was given to Adam back in chapter 1, verse 28, and it's at the beginning and the end of this passage. And so Cass observes that the law of verses 2 through 6 is wrapped in blessing of verses 1 and 7. He observes that the law's paramount interest is in promoting human life, right? That all of this is to be connected to each other. But if you think about it, reading it now chronologically, verse 7 will sound differently to Noah than it did in verse 1. Cass observes the natural good of life is now bound up with the legal good of right and the legal obligation to defend it. So verse 1 just sounds like something that's been heard before, but now verse 7 after verses 2 through 6, sounds different, right? It has a different flavor than it did when it's first said in verse 1. Now for the details. Verse 2, the fear and the dread of the animals, and it falls on all the beasts. Now, at least today, there's at least a bit of hyperbole. There's plenty of beasts out there that don't fear or dread us much of it all, unless maybe you have a gun. Matthew Henry observes here, man in innocence ruled by love, fallen man rules by fear. And presumably, the fear and dread is connected to the call to dominion in verse 1 and the menu change that follows in verse 3. Now, verse 3 gives us an introduction to meat eating, at least legitimate meat eating, when God says, I give you everything. Again, we have an example of God's grace here, the giving, and it's a new food chain that's being introduced here. So is this diet new and improved, or is it a divine concession? Again, it's possible, quite possible, that meat eating had begun before the flood, just not with permission, right? Eve had taken the fruit, and she was not that much of a mess. We look at Cain and his line, and the idea that people would have been taking meat uh, that had been prohibited is certainly quite possible. Uh, commentators also wonder if Noah's sacrifice from the last section as part of this as well, that he introduces violence and bloodshed as soon as he gets off the ark. And maybe God is just saying, that's the way it's going to need to be. Uh, I'm going to concede that going forward. Although they're now granted this freedom, it does not necessarily imply that indulging that freedom is a good idea in general or in any particular context. So here we have the traditional wrestling between legalism and liberty. Think about verses like Galatians 5, 1 and 13, or when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians twice about, you know, just because we're free to do it doesn't mean it's beneficial to us and others. So we still have to be concerned about the use and abuse of this freedom. Had Noah considered this possibility, already? Was he already thinking about eating meat? Well, again, that depends on what was being done before, and it may get back to why he did the sacrifice in the first place. In any case, Leon Cass says, the hoped-for harmonious relation of man and animals recreated aboard Noah's Ark, in which man, like a true ruler, rules in the interest of the ruled, is gone. The shepherd will now tend his flock with at least part of his mind on lamb chops. Yet the shepherd is not and must not become a wolf. And I think that's the trade-off here that's really interesting, right? How do we not act like a wolf but still eat meat? How do we treat animals well in God's kingdom? So, of course, here we can get into animal rights and vegetarianism. And again, this may not be an issue that's important to you, but it can be a big deal in terms of evangelism and ministry. So 
Uh, it's worth thinking through this, whatever you do with it personally, so that you can talk with others. Got some lame jokes here. You know, there's the old bumper sticker, I love animals, they taste great. Uh, if vegetarians eat vegetables, does that make cannibals humanitarians? And then the great line by A. Whitney Brown, who said, I'm not a vegetarian because I love animals. I'm a vegetarian because I hate plants. Okay, well, enough of the, of the lousy jokes. Let's get into the particulars here. How do you balance dominion of verse 1 with verse 3's ability to eat? How do we take care of animals that we're going to be eating? God cares for the animals, but in fallen creation, animals treat each other roughly in the wild. So uh, in fallen creation, in a way, kind of anything goes from nature's perspective. But when we look at animal rights, it's not because animals are equal to us, but because they are unequal, dependent, and vulnerable. If you think about the Bible's call, God's call, over and over again to defend the vulnerable, uh, animals certainly fit into that. If we're mistreating animals, that's a signal that we're not comfortable at all in the goodness of God's kingdom. And so there's no call here for animal abuse. And we could have interesting debates about the limits of animal testing, factory farming, circuses, rodeos, horse racing, dog shows, way beyond the scope of this show. But you can see where there's some interesting discussions and debates to be had here. And maybe at the end of the day, it's not better to think of this as animal rights, but as human responsibilities. What are our responsibilities to animals? Really nice resource on this is by Christopher Kilheffer. How's that for an ironic author's name? Called Our Food from God, and it's in Touchstone in the March 2002 issue. So if this is an issue that interests you, I encourage you to check out that article and think a little more about what does this mean for us in our interaction with animals. Now, verse 4 gives a limitation to the liberty that the blood is to be drained off and cooked. It is not to be ingested. Leviticus 17 will later tell us that life is in the blood and the blood is to go to God in what will later be described as offerings. Moreover, this is practiced by the pagans, and so therefore it is prohibited by God. It's also the only prohibition within the blessing, which should remind us of Adam and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's a blessing, but it does have a limitation to it. Verse 5 continues that man and animal have to account to God for human death. Animal life is to be respected, but man's life is to be honored to an even greater degree. Cass says, animal blood may not be eaten, but human blood must not even be shed. We saw an early hint of this in Genesis 4 with Cain murdering Abel. And ultimately, God is going to demand an account for all of our sin, which is dealt with by the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on our behalf. So the irony and justice there are interesting and great. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Tremendous poetry here with great symmetry. The word repetition has an inverted order. It has a style of A, B, C, C, B, A. And Jonathan Sachs notes about this. This is a picture-perfect reflection of style and substance. What is done to us is a mirror image of what we do. Notice that it also restricts justice to direct retribution in line with the famous phrase, eye for an eye rather than a subjective sense of what's appropriate. For example, killing the entire family, right? So it's got to be one for one. It's not just anything goes. So it's strict justice, but it's also proportionate and reciprocal justice. Now, when this is codified in the Ten Commandments, it'll be a negative command. Do not murder. 
And it's a little different here, but once the implicit rule is violated, it must be punished. So God expects murder to continue, but it must not be tolerated by people. And again, there'll be much more to say in Exodus when murdering is defined in greater detail. There's nothing here so far about manslaughter, homicide, murder, and all sorts of other topics, but that's a topic, again, for a different day. Verse 6 continues by motivating it with, for in the image of God has God made man. If verse 6 starts with the disincentive of fear that there'll be retribution, the end of verse 6 focuses on the mind and the heart. Killing is contempt for both man and God. As Cass notes, by willfully denying the godlike nature of human life, the killer denies his own share of godlikeness and forfeits his claim to remain as a member of the human community. Verse 6 implies equality, but the end of verse 6 makes it explicit, given who made each of us. If God made all of us, then we're equal. Now, the image of God concept is seemingly verbalized to man for the first time. We read it as an audience in chapter 1, verse 28, but here it's verbalized in the text. Cass observes, man becomes conscious of his own God-likeness here. It enters human consciousness precisely at the point at which God becomes a moral and legal being. Man discovers right here his in-between status. We are higher than the animals. We are like, albeit lower than, a God. And this takes us back to verse 5 and the phrase demand and accounting, which is now specified that man becomes an avenging agent in verse 6. We've talked about man in terms of speech, reason, and freedom, but now we're talking about man explicitly with respect to questions of good and evil and building on that law, justice, and punishment. This also allows or even endorses capital punishment. That's, again, a longer discussion, but this one verse by itself clearly opens the door for that. And then back to Genesis 4, it's interesting that Cain was not killed by God in that moment, or allowed to be murdered by others without a significant penalty. So part of the fresh start that God puts together here is that might makes right is not going to go anymore, right? Instead, we're transitioning to law and justice under God. Now, this is not discovered by Noah or his reason. It's given by God's revelation, which is interesting. It's also not Jewish per se, because this is pre-Abraham. It's meant to be universal. It's directed at all people, whoever, not just Noah, it's not excludable for the rich and the powerful. There's no favoritism here. It's for everyone. But it's also that to some extent, God takes man as he is rather than as he might be. It seems to expect less of him, but demands more from him in terms of the law's requirements. A few more thoughts from Cass to close this out. He connects it to Noah's sacrifice in the preceding passage. He says it makes explicit and also regulates what is implicit in Noah's sacrifice. And then he makes three points. Noah sees himself as separate from the animals, and the law strengthens that, even allowing man to eat animals. Noah has shown a willingness to shed animal blood. So the law prohibits eating the blood and demands retribution for shedding man's blood. And then third, Noah seeks relationship with God through sacrifice. God now defines relationship in terms of justice, the importance of loving God, loving others. So while sacrifice will be a part of that, God in, in essence is trumping that with the importance of justice. And as we'll see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, sacrifice without justice is completely incoherent and unacceptable. All right, a good place to take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous shows are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the second half of Noah's story today. And in the first segment, we talked about the end of chapter 8, which wraps up the flood and has Noah coming off the boat and offering a sacrifice. In the second segment, we had our first large formalization of the law, where God speaks to Noah in Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And in this third segment, we're going to talk about the covenant that God establishes with Noah in verses 8 through 17. Before we do that, we want to note what's not in the text, which is often a useful technique or exercise to go through. After God has done all the things he said in verses 1 through 7, what does Noah say? And the answer is nothing, silence. Now that by itself is not necessarily trouble. It could be, you know, what is there to say after God has said all that? It could just be that this is a section break, right? That we are distinguishing between verses 1 through 7 and the law and verses 8 through 17 and the covenant. But we've also been trained by the text to recognize that the silence and the silence of men in particular may be giving us some signals, right? It's at the heart of the story uh, in Genesis 3 verse 6 where Adam is standing there like a dope when his wife is being tempted. And so we're wondering about the same thing with Noah. And Noah's been a man of action but doesn't seem to have talked very much. So again, maybe his silence is meant as a signal to us. In chapter 9, four times it says, God said, verses 1, 8, 12, and 17. And again, there's no response from Noah. Maybe this indicates a failure to understand. Maybe it indicates some resistance. We're not really sure. But again, Noah doesn't say much. Leon Cass runs with this idea quite a bit. He says, we have no idea what Noah himself made of what he had just been told. Silence, perhaps from incomprehension or puzzlement perhaps from understanding all too well, perhaps from fear or reluctance to comply, perhaps from despair over the human prospect. God's speech about bloodshed and retribution could hardly have been what Noah expected to hear in response to his sacrificial offering. To address the human silence, God has to say more. God makes Noah a crucial promise. So there are many possibilities as to why Noah is silent, but I do like what cast notes here at minimum, which is that this is probably not what Noah was expecting to hear after the sacrifice. So we'll start reading in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. The first thing to note here is there's a lot of repetition in the text, which tells us that it's a big deal. And it also may indicate that Noah needs a lot of reassurance after recent events. Now, the reader knows this is coming. Chapter 8, verse 22, 
This was in God's heart, and that's communicated to us. But aside from a brief mention in chapter 6, verse 18, and that probably seems like a very long time ago, this may be unexpected for Noah, especially after the last thing that God said, right? You have this sobering constraint of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and that leads to this hopeful vision of chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. The combo we seek is personal righteousness and civil society. And this is speaking not just to individual morality, but where a nation or society will go from here. It's also not just a matter of law. That's what we saw in the first half of chapter 9, but now we're into covenant and blessing as the second half. After God's flood, you might think that life was cheap and expendable. Picture wiping off a chalkboard over and over again, right? That God might just keep doing this whenever things aren't going very well. But instead, we saw that verses 5 through 6 was telling us that life is sacred, and there were negative sanctions given for humans violating that. But where verses 1 through 7 were negative, here we have a positive covenant with Noah. Leon Cass says, just as human nature in the absence of law always threatens human life through violence, so external nature in the absence of covenant always threatens human life through cataclysm. And so here we're worried about both human evil and fallen nature, and God deals with both, and both provide hope for the future. All of us need this, but you can picture Noah really needing it given recent events and perhaps what might be compared to PTSD. Can you imagine being Noah whenever it rains? Uh, It would just be so uh, difficult, right, to be Noah in this moment. And so God's comforting him, uh, and that's just really cool to see. So the word covenant is obviously crucial here. It appears eight times in the passage. The Hebrew word here is berith, which comes from a root word meaning to bind together and implying that it would not come or stay together without effort, especially from God. Here it's unsolicited, unconditional, and unilateral. It's God volunteering and engaging in permanent restraint. P.H. Reardon is helpful here. He says, although the initiative in the covenant is always God's, The verb karet, which means to cut, does suggest something of a mutual agreement between the two parties because both parties are going to receive a cut. Both the verb karet and the noun bereth were commonly employed in the ancient world to designate political treaties. In fact, we'll see this with Abraham and Isaac with Abimelech in chapter 21 and chapter 26. Reardon continues, in these Genesis covenants of God with Noah and Abraham, two other verbs are used, netan, which means to give, and hakim, which means to establish. The first of these verbs emphasizes the gratuity, the generosity of God's act. This is pure, unmerited grace. This is God's covenant, but it's God's grace as well. The second verb places the accent on God's resolve in the covenant. God himself will not break the covenant. Each of these covenants is a perpetual pledge of hope, for the future. Rudin continues by noting that each of the covenants with Noah and Abraham receive a sign. Here it's the rainbow. For Abraham, it'll be circumcision. The other key word that keeps getting repeated in this passage is that God's going to remember his covenant. In the Septuagint, this is turned into the Greek word amnesis, which is then used for the Lord's Supper. Reardon concludes, this is why the church's celebration of the Holy Eucharist is the defining act of her existence. This is that memorial to Christ dying on the cross for our sins. One distinction here is that the sign of the covenant here is between God and earth and all mankind, whereas the sign of circumcision and later the Sabbath in Exodus 31 will be given to Abraham and Israel in particular. 
Now, a rainbow is actually an ironic symbol here, right? It's an ephemeral abstract phenomenon, which points to an eternal concrete promise. And for Noah and often for us, rainbows require rain to start the sign. So we're actually reminded of the devastation before we're reminded of the promise. So the flood stands as a monument to God's justice, the rainbow to God's mercy. And without this promise, how would Noah and company react the next time it began to rain? The irony here is that moderate rain is an important, necessary blessing. But rain, of course, would freak out Noah and company the next time they saw it. G. Campbell Morgan says the full value of the rainbow was not so much that when man looked at it, he remembered the covenant, but rather that he remembered that God was looking and remembering. And again, the use of the word remembering is a great anthropomorphism. It's not as if God can really forget something, right? It's that we get to remember that he remembers and and loves us in his mercy and grace. Last thing I've got in my notes, I'm not sure even where I got it, probably on Facebook or something, but it's titled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. And it makes eight points. First, don't miss the boat. Second, don't forget that we're all in the same boat. Third, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Fourth, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, God might ask you to do something really big. Fifth, don't listen to critics. Just get on with what has to be done. Six, remember that the ark was built by amateurs. The Titanic was built by professionals. Number seven, remember that woodpeckers and termites inside are a larger threat than the storm outside. And eighth, no matter the storm, when you're one with God, there's a rainbow waiting. So a great story, huge in human history and huge for our understanding of theology and anthropology. Good place to take a break. Please consider supporting the mission of Christianville Foundation. Go to the website christmasgiftoflife.com to support their work to provide food, education, and health care to over 1,600 children daily. Thanks for your support in advance. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week we're doing the second half of Noah's story, and we began in chapter 8, verse 13. The first segment was devoted to the aftermath of the flood, including Noah's sacrifice when he gets off the boat. The second segment was on God's covenant with Noah, particularly the law piece of it in verses 1 through 7. And then explicitly the covenant with respect to the rainbow was in the third segment, verses 8 through 17. So at this point, we really have the founding of civil society from a biblical basis, right? It's based on rudimentary but explicit notions of law and justice, and it's rooted in the idea that all human beings are created equally in God's image. And so this story is both personal, but it's also political and social. Is the new order going to succeed? Is this law and covenant sufficient? And is Noah up to the task? So we start into the wrap-up of Noah's story with verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. The reference to scattered in verse 19 is interesting. It alludes to the flood, but it also foreshadows the events to follow, the genealogy of chapter 10, and then particularly the story of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Cass observes that this looks forward to a time in which the whole earth will be overspread not with water, 
but with people. And then the key part of the passage is the reintroduction to Shem, Japheth, and especially Ham as Noah's three sons. Now, they were mentioned back in chapter 5, verse 32, and also in chapter 7, verse 13. Here we have the addition of a mention of an aside that Ham is Canaan's father. That seems odd here, but we'll come back to that later. Ham's name means hot or warm from a verb meaning to inflame oneself. So that seems a bit ominous. Shem's name means name. And that's a word that's been used prior to this. And it's a key to the Babel story, making a name for oneself, but ultimately how he will earn his name through his lineage to Abraham. So the narrative now takes us then to Noah's sons and his male ark companions. And in particular here, we have our first prototypical parent story or really a father-son or father-son's story here. And in the context of the narrative, this timing is not particularly surprising. It's post-law and covenant, and it's asking about the ability of Noah or not to pass this on to his sons, the next generation, the role of tradition. And so Noah has been personally pious, but can he pass along the law's righteousness and the covenant's implied holiness, and most broadly, his willingness to look up to God. Can he pass that on to his sons? And as Cass notes, this depends decisively on paternal authority and filial piety, right? Depends on the authority of the dad and whether the sons are going to follow. If we have neither of these, then it's going to be a mess for the family and then wide scale for society. If you get one or the other, that can happen. I mean, there are exceptions. Sometimes the sons are faithful and the dad's a mess, or the dad's faithful and the sons are a mess. But usually the one follows from the other, and hopefully we get both, right? That's what we're aiming for here. Now, there is a role for mom here as well, but the text seems to be underlying the importance of fathers and the need for fathers to be exhorted compared to what we've seen so far in the book of Genesis, the sin of Adam's silence uh, we have Cain and company seeking esteem from outside the home, etc. And we see men failing at this quite often, uh, whether it's the silence of men from Adam Ford or the violence of men from Cain Ford. Uh, it's really important that fathers and men take care of business. Now, this is, this authority and this opportunity can certainly be abused, uh, and it is difficult to balance encouragement and discipline within parenting. But the task is important, clearly vital for both family and society. Now, we have two clues already that something might be unusual and troubling. The first is that the sons are not listed in order. And that's not biblically unusual to have two siblings reversed. But here we have Shem, the middle son, and the model son. He's always mentioned first. And so it's kind of cool biblically that virtue trumps birth order. And then Ham is the youngest, and he's the central character, so he's mentioned in the middle here. And then second, we've already passed one of the clues up. It was back in chapter 8, verses 16 and 18, and you'll want to look at the text on your own for this. But what you'll notice is that there's a command to Noah to come out of the ark in a certain order. And then you've got to read it really carefully, but in verse 18... Noah does not come out in the proper order. So we're about to talk about the famous sin of Noah in the next passage, but his first sin is actually as he's getting off of the boat. And the problem is really interesting in light of the context of what's happened so far in Genesis, that he's commanded to get off the, the ark with his wife second, 
and his son's third. And instead, he messes that up. And in verse 18, he brings his sons off second and his wife third. In other words, he's still living by the old world's model of a man's man, of might makes right, of a man's world. And so this is actually a really, really big deal in the text. As Cass notes, Noah, a new man rescued from the heroic age, nevertheless apparently still holds to a heroic model of family structure. It's only the men who count. Notice we also don't even read about Noah's wife's name. Uh, it's, it's not until the patriarchs that the women step up and provide uh, a key part of the narrow narrative and are a key part of the story. And so we already know that Noah doesn't understand, is not understanding what he's supposed to do going forward, and that his relationship to his sons and his wives is not going to be the ideal. All right, verses 20 and 21, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Okay, so verse 20 gives us the vineyard, and drinking is fine, uh, being drunk is not. So that's what gets Noah into trouble here. It's also a little troubling that he follows Cain into agriculture, but, you know, got to be a farmer. Uh, there's got to be farmers to feed everybody. And he moves into wine, which is here portrayed as man's invention rather than a divine gift. And therefore, we know to look at wine as a mixed bag. Verse 21, he's, he's drunk and naked, similar to the story in Genesis 19 with Lot and his daughters. One wonders if this is a one-time slip or a recurring problem. If it's the first, maybe he doesn't know about the wine's potence, or it's a mistake and he takes things too far, right? That can happen. Or maybe it's a recurring pattern. Maybe he has PFSD, post-flood stress disorder, and he's had a rough time, right? Before the flood, all, all that went into that, the flood itself, seeing a desolate landscape littered with animal and human corpses, overwhelmed with his responsibilities, you know, maybe he's just struggling and he hits the bottle. It may also be the case, and it's interesting to consider this, that he's got a lot more idle time on his hands. And maybe that's part of how he gets himself in trouble. Either way, this moment robs him of some of his dignity and authority, which is, again, the text primary consideration at this point. Notice also that Noah's account parallels Adam's account as well. We have a vineyard here. We had God's garden back in chapter 2. We have sin from the fruit of the vine. There we had sin from the fruit of the tree. Here we have a nakedness of degradation. Back in chapter 2, we had nakedness as a symbol of Adam's innocence, and then in chapter 3 is a recognition of his guilt. So the fruit and nakedness play a role in both of these stories. Adam sought cover for his shame. Noah's not even conscious of his. In both cases, it's a pivotal event and a pivotal revelation for them and for us as well. Verse 22 and 23, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. So Ham sees this and then tells his brother. Again, he's identified as the father of Canaan, which is ominous and foreshadowing. Now, the first time he sees his dad, it could be accidental, although you could wonder what he was doing in his dad's tent to begin with. The second is clearly purposeful. Both are a breach of family and cultural ethics, right? Verse 24 is real clear on this. When Noah awoke from the wine and found out what his younger, youngest son had done to him. 
Remember with Cain, we had, am I my brother's keeper? Now we have, am I my father's keeper? Again, back to the importance of the father-son relationship being developed here. Cass says, what kind of human being is Ham? What sort of person delights in rebelling against law and authority? Most often, he is the would-be tyrant, a man who seeks self-sufficiency. And we'll see this in his lineage, that his grandson Nimrod is described in such terms in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. This is also a form of patricide, kind of along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 5. He's willing to kill his dad's reputation here uh, by reporting this to the brothers. He had enough faith and respect to get on the ark with his dad, but not enough to respect his father here. Now, again, part of the story may be that Noah had gone downhill. Uh, We don't know that, but in any case, this is not the right way to treat your dad. Big picture, Ham is implicitly rejecting the new law and the covenant. I think the other thing to consider here is how do we handle others who have shamed themselves? And often in pop culture, and with gossiping. There's a lot of uh, excitement about talking about others or even delighting in other people falling. There's also then a difference too between public and private sin. And this is a private sin that has been made public, which is especially troubling. Now, Japheth and Shem, the other two brothers, are shocked to hear of the event, or at least Ham's account of it. Again, is this a one-time thing or repetitive This is maybe a tough moment for them. They'd seen their father's courageous and authoritative, righteous building the ark. But, you know, this is a troubling moment. What do you do? Well, where's Noah's wife is one question. Second, you can go and see. You could disbelieve it. You could ignore or wait. But instead, they act proactively with benevolence. Do they confront Ham? There's nothing recorded there. But in any case, they take care of their dad. They don't look at him. They cover him up. So it's an act of grace. You know, mercy here would be just don't look and wait till he wakes up. But they actually go and cover him up as God covers our shame at nakedness. Cass says, we readers are touched by this display of loyalty and filial piety. The perfect way they found delicately to correct the problem without participating in it. But they cannot erase the memory of their deed or what made it necessary for them to perform it. And frankly, things are probably made a bit weird with dad from here going forward. That's the nature of these sorts of things. It underlines also the advantages of the ears rather than the eyes again, which is another recurring theme in Genesis. Once you've seen this, it's burned in your memory. If you hear it, you might dismiss it as hearsay. It probably fades from your memory because it's more abstract. But once you've seen it, it's a lot tougher. And again, we're back to the ironies of throughout Genesis so far about the role of knowledge, right? They've gained knowledge that they certainly wish they didn't have. Back to the big picture here. Both are embracing authority, law, and covenant. Eh, Maybe two out of three sons ain't bad. So somewhat hopeful here. I mean, the first sibling story was Cain and Abel, and that was rivalry. Here we have two brothers working together for righteousness. And there is the third that's causing trouble. But at least two brothers are doing a good job here. Back to the question of parents passing on their faith, this is not a great start. Dad stumbles and struggles to pass on law and covenant, and there is some conflict here. It's not completely brutal given what Shem and Japheth do, but it's certainly not what we would have hoped for. So what does Noah do? Verses 24 through 29, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, 
May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years. And then he died. The passage ends with Noah's death and age in verses 28 and 29, but we have much more important things to talk about before that. Uh, As Cass quips, Noah does not take his shame lying down. All right, he gets up. This is actually the first time we hear him speak, and it's to go off on Ham and to bless Sham and Japheth. Noah's anger is surely expected here. You know, rage is the usual response to being shamed. And the anger seems to stir Noah to what seem to be rare words. If Noah was a quieter man, and that's the text seems to indicate, uh, you don't want to mess with quiet folks. You push them far enough and they'll go off, right? It's interesting to consider how Noah knew who did what. Maybe it's inferences, maybe he has some vague or drunken memory, maybe he asked around, but he probably can infer it from the son's character. Verses 24 and 25, he pronounces a curse on Ham's son, Canaan, and his descendants. And this is fulfilled later on through Genesis 14.4 and other Old Testament passages. The curse communicates the severity of the, the offense, and curses and blessings should be seen as analogous to prayer. It's a supernatural petition or at the least what one hopes or wishes for another. The two big questions come up here. Did Noah overreact? Is he blame shifting to him? He doesn't seem to be taking responsibility. I think in context, we can infer that this was the last straw, that Ham was a bit of a mess, and this is uh, it for Noah with respect to that. One thing that's still curious though, is why does he curse Canaan, the son, rather than Ham, the father? And of course, at some level, this is perfectly fitting. The breach in the father's family will be a curse on the son's family. Ham had sought to be free from parental authority, and now he'll be held responsible by his own son. And as Ham had responded to Noah, so Canaan would likely respond to Ham. It reminds me of when my kids are acting up, and there's a part of me that kind of hopes their kids do the same thing to them. Now, is this fair or just to Canaan? Well, things don't turn out too well for Canaan's descendants, but often curses and blessings are seem to have some effect in the divine economy, but they're never in a deterministic sense. Canaan is not punished for his father's sins, but there is a generational effect many times of the sins of the father. And if Ham is a mess, then he's probably going to pass that on to his son. Practically then, Noah is more prophesying than causing or wishing it. Now, some of Ham's sons do settle in Africa, but unfortunately, this verse has been used incorrectly to argue for the enslavement of blacks historically, if you go way back. A number of problems with this position. It would not contradict New Testament teaching. Canaan himself did not settle in Africa, and the Canaanites were Caucasian. Other than that, it works really well, which means it doesn't work at all. The other thing is to look at a passage like Numbers 12, where Moses has interracial marriage and God defends it. Just a garbage position to try and use this passage to promote slavery. 26 and 27, we have the blessings for Shem and then the blessings for Japheth. Shem will be the father of the Shemites or Semites, in other words, the Jews. And Noah does seem to attribute greater righteousness to Shem. Japheth is a father of the non-Arab European Gentiles. In later Israelite inheritance terms, Shem receives the priesthood birthright. Japheth will receive the double blessing, which includes the extending territory of verse 27. Cass argues that Noah's three sons represent tyrannical man, noble decent man, and pious man. Finally, why is this story in here? Three reasons, right? One is that the heroes of the faith in the Bible often have warts, and that's 
great. I mean, that helps us motivate us that God can still work with knuckleheads like us. Second, it sets up the choice of the Semites as the people with whom God would choose to work with more explicitly. And finally, after the flood, evil reappears on a godly man, and that's not a good sign. As we'll see, this continues to point us toward the Old Covenant and God's work with Abraham and the nation of Israel and the law and the prophets and so on and so forth. And ultimately, that's not going to work either, which leads us to the New Covenant, Christ, the Spirit, and Pentecost. Great to be with you today. We hope to see you next time on The Word Diet.